Well, as I was uh, praying and pondering about what passage of scripture we should look at together tonight, the Lord directed my mind to John 18, verses one through 12, and I wanna invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them there, and um, just open up to John chapter 18, and you can follow along with me as I read our text for this evening. It's, again, John 18, verses one through 12. John records that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that, I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Fathers, we have the privilege once again to look into your holy word and to consider this part of the passion story, the initial arrest of Christ, which would be followed shortly by his trial and his execution, I pray that you would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes to hear things and see things that maybe we've never seen or heard before and that this would be a refreshing glance at the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name, amen. Well, I know we've all been watching the news and uh, it seems like everything in the news these days is about the coronavirus, and during this outbreak, I'm sure you've read and and heard how people have been getting arrested for all sorts of things, for violating uh, the stay-at-home orders, uh, price-gouging essential items, licking products at stores, coughing on people. One guy actually got arrested for spraying liquid from a bottle that he he had a label that said COVID-19 and he went around spraying it on some business and telling everyone that they now were infected. Some gal showed up at an airport buck naked. I don't know what that has to do with coronavirus, but, and then of course, we've all heard of the pastors who are getting arrested for holding church services. My point is that no one wants to get arrested 
Few anticipate getting arrested and rarely does anyone willingly surrender to the authorities. Typically, they do whatever they can to avoid getting arrested and at times, they end up getting injured or even killed as a result of resisting arrest. We've all gotten used to hearing stories of, about people claiming they were unwittingly and unwillingly victims of police brutality in situations that were unfortunately out of their control as they claim. Well, none of these things were true when Jesus was arrested. Jesus anticipated his arrest and willingly surrendered himself to the authorities when they came to arrest him. And he was no victim, it was no accident, and he was totally in control of the entire situation. And it's obvious that that was John's main point by what he chose to include and to emphasize in his description of Jesus' arrest. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that John clearly stated his goal in writing his gospel, and that was to show that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 20, verse 21, he said this, excuse me, verse 31, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so in order to accomplish that goal, he purposely included things in his gospel from the life of Christ that best highlighted his deity. And his account of Christ's betrayal and arrest is no different. John recorded this dramatic event in simple and direct terms in order to accentuate the sovereignty and majesty of Christ, that he was large and in charge. And you can see that just from a couple verses. Verse four, it says, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. And then in verse nine, it says, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. John wanted there to be no doubt that this entire situation was under Christ's control and all part of his divine plan. Jesus didn't just anticipate his arrest, he arranged it. And we know that because throughout the Gospel of John, uh, John mentioned that the religious Authorities attempted to arrest Jesus on a number of occasions, but he eluded them because it wasn't the right time. You can turn back uh, earlier in the book, if you'd like, and see some of these references. John chapter seven, verse 30. It says, so they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter eight, verse 20, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And there in the same chapter, verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then look at chapter 10. 
chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Listen to this. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. And again, in that same chapter, chapter 10, verse 39, again, notice it says, therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. The point is, Jesus couldn't have been arrested unless he wanted to be arrested. And this time, he did not elude arrest. Now, ironically, this was the time that the religious leaders were best prepared. They came loaded for bear. They they had called for backup, if you will. They were ready for a fight. They, They weren't about to let him get away again. But to their surprise, they didn't need all that firepower because when they arrived in the garden, Jesus simply surrendered. And in a very real sense, the mob didn't arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested them. That's why I chose to title this message tonight, Who Arrested Who? Who Arrested Who? Because in this text, there are at least five indications that Jesus was not unexpectedly captured, but sovereignly controlled his entire arrest and voluntarily surrendered himself in order to carry out the divine plan of redemption that required his sacrificial death. And so I want us to see these five indications that Jesus was totally in control of his arrest. And there's also uh, some encouraging implications that we'll see at the end that we can apply to our own lives as we are all facing a very scary and hard situation that feels like things are out of control, there's a lot to apply in our lives from this story. And so what was the first indicator? Let's look at that. The first indication that Jesus was in charge of his capture, he was not unexpectedly captured but sovereignly controlled the entire event, is the secluded garden. The secluded garden. Notice verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And so after finishing praying for both his first disciples, his original disciples, and all those who would become disciples through their witness, that includes us here tonight, The disciples left the upper room with Jesus and descended down the east slope of the city of Jerusalem and they had to cross over the Kidron Valley which is a ravine that passes through between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And during the rainy season, water flows through that valley from north to south on its way to the Dead Sea and when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with the disciples that evening, the water was likely mixed with blood because there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to the Kidron Valley to drain away all the blood of the sacrifices. And it's recorded that during Passover week, more than 200,000 lambs were slain and so you can imagine 
how bloody that water must have been. And again, as they stepped over that river, if you will, of blood, that was a a, a rich image of Christ's imminent sacrifice on the cross. But once they passed through this valley stream, they made their way up the lower slope of the Mount of Olives to a garden, and John didn't mention the name of the garden, but we know it to be Gethsemane, which means literally oil press, because it was a grove of olive trees. Again, it was, I think, uh, that word Gethsemane is, again, beautiful imagery of, uh, symbolic of the agonizing prayer, how Jesus was being pressed, if you will, that night as he cried out to God in prayer. Well, John chooses to leave out Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the gap between verses one and two is filled in by the Synoptic Gospels. You can read in Matthew 26, Mark 14, or Luke 22, what happened in that white space between verses one and two. Let me just read for you quickly, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verse 39, and here we have that memorable uh, interchange between the Son and the Father and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so Jesus realized the the horror that he was about to face on the cross where he would be made sin and be separated from God and it caused him to break out in a bloody sweat. Well, John picked up the narrative here in verse two after Jesus had finished praying and had resolved to go through with the crucifixion He goes on and says, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So this was a place where Jesus would often go with his disciples whenever they were in Jerusalem. It actually said in Luke, what I just read, that it was their custom to come here. And because it was Passover, the city would have been packed with visitors and probably have limited lodging, and so Jesus and his band were apparently camping out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 21, verse 37 says, now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. We're familiar with the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. That's where he gave that great discourse about the end times and his second coming. And so Judas, uh, excuse me, Jesus knew that Judas would look for him there and sure enough, along came Judas right on schedule. Earlier that night, you'll remember that Judas had left the upper room to finalize his plans to betray Jesus 
And in, back in chapter 13 of John, we see how Jesus not only predicted that G- Judas would betray him, but he also planned the exact time and location the betrayal would take place. In other words, Jesus sovereignly determined that he would be arrested at night in a remote place so that the nationalistic crowds who had earlier that week hailed him the Messiah would not rise up and support him and expect him to lead a revolt revolt in Rome. And so the fact that Jesus planned out this location, this secluded garden, it was the perfect place for him to get arrested without creating a riot. We see another indicator, another reason why Jesus clearly was in charge of his arrest, and that is the stunned mob. The secluded garden is the first point. The second point is the stunned mob. Notice verse three. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. After pocketing the the 30 pieces of of silver that were given to him by the chief priests and the, the elders, he led the temple police force and a detachment of Roman soldiers from the Tower of Antonia, which is uh, connected to the temple in Jerusalem, and it overlooks the temple area, and the Romans put some guards there uh, just to keep watch over that highly populated area where they assumed if there was gonna be a riot somewhere, it would happen on the Temple Mount area. It says here that Judas came with a Roman cohort, which was a tenth of a legion, or about 600 men, which is way more than it normally would take to arrest one guy. Do you really need 600 soldiers to arrest one guy? Well, obviously, Jesus' miraculous powers were legendary by then, and so they didn't know what to expect, and so what a sight that trail of torches and lanterns must have been descending from the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley to arrest Jesus. I was thinking for you kids who may be watching tonight if you've seen the movie Beauty and the Beast when Gaston stirred up the mob to go kill the beast and they all grabbed their torches and they all marched in procession out to the castle and you might have that image in your mind tonight and that probably is what it looked like as uh, this trail was coming, trail of torches was coming to attack and arrest Jesus. You may remember that the Jewish religious leaders had originally intended to wait until after Passover to arrest Jesus for fear that a a riot would break out and and yet in light of Jesus' increasing popularity among the Jews, they decided that the next best thing was to apprehend him in a remote place like this garden in the middle of the night. Little did they know that they could have left their weapons at home since Jesus willingly and peacefully turned himself in. Notice verse four, and so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? 
Jesus was, Jesus was fully aware that, that the Jewish establishment was plotting to, to kill him and he had known all along that Judas was going to betray him and so he could have easily escaped but his hour had come. And so Jesus stepped out of the shadows to meet Judas and his entourage who had come to take him by force and he asked him, hey, who are you looking for? He was unarmed, he was alone, and yet he was in complete command. Notice verse five, they answered him, Jesus a Nazarene, he said to them, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Being that it was uh, pitch dark, they wanted to make sure that they arrested the right guy, and John mentioned that Judas was with them, but I think it's interesting that he left out the, the traitorous kiss that served as the signal to the temple guards, the soldiers, who they were to arrest. But as I mentioned earlier, John was focused on the majesty of Christ rather than the treachery of Judas. And so he chose to, to downplay Judas' disloyal kiss and highlight Jesus' supernatural power. Notice what he said twice in answer they said, Jesus the Nazarene, he said, I am he. Literally, what he said there was, I am. He is not in the original Greek. It, it's, it was added in the English translation here. And uh, you know that this was not the first time that Jesus had taken upon himself the sacred name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, you may be familiar with the account of Moses in the burning bush and God appeared to him in the burning bush and said, hey, I want you to go de deliver my people. Go tell Pharaoh in Egypt to let my people go. And Moses is like, okay, but God, who should I tell him sent me? And God simply said, tell him I am sent you. He said, I am who I am. That was the name of God and Jesus on a number of occasions had referred to himself as I am. In chapter four of John, verse 26, Jesus said to her, this is the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he. In chapter eight, verse 24, speaking to the Pharisees, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Verse 28, he says it again, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Again in verse 58 of chapter eight, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And then in chapter 13, verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. So throughout his life and ministry, Jesus referred to himself by the name of God. In other words, he was establishing his deity. 
He was claiming to be God and everyone understood that's exactly what he was doing and that's why they were trying to kill him. And yet this is the first time when those words came out of his mouth, I am, that it was so overpowering that it knocked those soldiers to the ground. This majestic revelation from the mouth of God himself. And so when this calloused betrayer and these experienced police officers and highly trained Roman soldiers heard the voice of the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, they were knocked to the ground as if by some invisible supernatural force. The point is they couldn't stand in the presence of Almighty God. They were more than just startled, they were, they were stunned by his commanding presence and profound words. It's, if you can imagine it, they got, it's like they got hit with a stun gun, it just like, boosh, and knocked them back. And who knows, it may have even knocked them out. And so we see this indicator of Christ's power and control, this stunned mob. Thirdly, another indication that Christ was in complete control of this arrest was the shielded disciples. The shielded disciples. Notice verse seven, therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now I would imagine the mob had showed up not just to arrest Jesus, but also his followers, his disciples. But Jesus got the mob to confirm two times that they were only looking for him, and by doing so, he was securing the release of his disciples. He was making sure that they would not be taken with him. And Jesus did this to to shield his disciples from being arrested or injured or killed because he knew their faith was not strong enough at that point to handle this kind of persecution. This reminds me of the verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you but that which is common to man and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. In other words, God will never let you be in a situation that is more than you can handle or endure. Jesus had just finished praying that he would protect those that the Father had given him and that he wouldn't lose a single one for the, of them except for Judas. This was back in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, 12. Again, I think this is a, a beautiful preview, if you will, of Christ's substitutionary atonement. The fact that he was gonna die in 
our place. He sacrificed himself to save his disciples. He laid down his life for his sheep, as it says in John 10, 11. And in doing so, he fulfilled his own prophetic words, that he would not lose anyone that the Father had given him except for Judas. Notice in verse nine, I think this is important to note, John says to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Do you notice that John quoted Jesus' words in the same way he quoted statements from the Old Testament elsewhere in his gospel? What's the implication? The implication is that Jesus' words are God's words. John 14, 24, the words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so John puts Christ's words on the same level as God's word. So did the Apostle Paul. Paul said that in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In Colossians chapter three, Paul said this, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so this is a good reminder, again, of the deity of Christ. And so the fact that he shielded his disciples shows that he was in control. He had the power to do whatever he wanted at this moment. There's a fourth indicator. Not only do we see the shielded disciples, but we see the severed ear. The severed ear. Verse 10, this is probably the most familiar part of this arrest scene. Verse 10, Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. We all know that Peter was impulsive in his words and his actions and after watching his Lord flatten the mob with just a word, I'm sure that Peter felt infused with this rush of invincibility and he wasn't about to let, wasn't about to let his, his, uh, his Lord be arrested without a fight and so he grabbed one of the two swords that the disciples had in their possession and he lunged at the closest person to him who, who just happened to be the slave of the high priest. He's even named here, Malchus. And certainly he wasn't trying to cut off his ear, he was going for the head, but he missed and cut off his ear instead and it's been said that Peter was better at catching fish than he was fighting with the sword. But what he was doing is he was making good on the boastful promise that he had made earlier to Jesus that night that if everyone else abandoned him, he would never forsake Jesus. And so Jesus warned Peter that before the night was over, he would deny him three times, to which Peter responded, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I'm not gonna deny you. And he was ready to die, defending his master and Lord, but he was a perfect example of zeal without knowledge. Because when Jesus had first mentioned to the disciples that he was was gonna die, Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, hey Jesus, come on over here. We need to have a little chat. And he actually rebuked Jesus and told him that he would never let that happen to him. And you 
know Jesus' response. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interest but your own. In other words, Peter was, wasn't just expressing what he wanted, he was also vocalizing what Satan wanted. Peter was unwittingly aligning himself with Satan who didn't want Jesus to die on the cross. In fact, the garden of Gethsemane was what some consider to be the last temptation of Christ. The first temptation was in the wilderness where Jesus was tempted three times by Satan, but in the garden he was tempted to not go through with the crucifixion. And even now, Peter still didn't get it. And Jesus had to tell him to put the sword away. Peter, I don't need you to defend me. If, and you may remember in Matthew's gospel, it says that he, Jesus said, if I wanted, I mean, I could call down from heaven 12 legions of angels to come to my defense. You know how many, how many uh, angels that is? 12 legions of angels, that's 60,000 angels. Which would have been, would have been no match, right? Uh, or those, those 600 soldiers would have been no match for 60,000 angels. They would have been, ma- been a match for one angel, let alone 60,000 angels. And so Jesus stopped Peter so he wouldn't jeopardize his heavenly mission and his upcoming defense before Pilate If you look ahead in this same chapter, chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate said, and he said this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so he could say that because he had to call Peter off. Hey, don't fight for me. If I wanted to fight, I would get soldiers from my own kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. I think what's more is that Peter's reckless act of chopping off the high priest's servant's ear could have easily started a battle that would have ended up getting all the disciples killed or arrested and that was the very thing that Jesus was working to prevent. And so in order to ease the tension of that moment, you can imagine how tense that, that crowd got as soon as Peter pulled that sword and, 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 and lashed out at that, that high priest's slave. The sheaths of all those swords of those soldiers came out. Ready to fight, ready to go to war. And so to ease that tense moment, According to Dr. Luke, in his gospel, Jesus intervened and miraculously healed Malchus's ear. Either he picked it, picked it up off the ground and, and reattached it, or, or maybe he just put his hand on the side of his head and recreated a new one. But the point is that Jesus modeled what he commanded about loving our enemies and doing good to those who hate us or hurt us. It's a great example there for us. Well, there's one more indication here that Jesus was in control of this whole scene, that he was sovereign over his arrest, and that is the submitted will. The submitted will. Notice verse 11 and 12. 
So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So at the very same moment that Peter was resisting God's will, Jesus was submitting to God's will. And he said, Peter, put the sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? That word, cup, is a, is a pregnant word, if you will. It's, it, it's a term used in the Old Testament to describe God's wrath poured out upon sin. Psalm 75, 8 says, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams, it is well mixed and he pours out of, it, out of this, surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down his dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17, Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Thus says your Lord, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger, you will never drink it again. And then in Jeremiah 25, 15, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Here in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup that Jesus referred to here symbolized God's wrath against our sin that Jesus was about to experience on the cross and Jesus knew that he must take the cup of wrath out of the Father's hand and drink it to the dregs, drink it dry. And in order for his death to provide a way for his people to not ever experience God's wrath, he would have to experience it for us. And so on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath for sin upon his son, Jesus. Jesus faced the full fury of God's wrath against sin so that all those who would repent and believe in him would no longer be under his wrath. John 3.36 clearly says, he who believes in the Son will have life, but he who does not obey the Son will not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul said in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Christians are famous for talking about being saved. We're saved. Well, saved from what? Well, according to Jesus, and according to Paul, were saved from God's wrath against sin. Notice verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So at that point, Jesus was handcuffed, if you will, And all the disciples scattered, just like he had predicted and planned. In fact, Mark even mentions that one of the disciples was grabbed a hold of 
uh, and just barely got away, but lost his clothes in the process and ran off buck naked. And so that was a close call for the disciples, but they got away, just like Jesus had promised. And so as you can see, John made it very clear that Jesus' arrest went off without a hitch exactly the way he had planned it. The secluded garden, the stunned mob, the shielded disciples, the severed ear, the submitted will, all indicate that Jesus was in complete control at the time of his arrest, which proves he is the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful son of the living God. And tonight, this same sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God is with us. Whenever we face terrifying, trying, Gethsemane-like situations in our lives, like the one we're all experiencing right now with the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic. This is a challenging time for all of us. And it feels like the coronavirus is out of control and the world is coming apart at the seams and it may feel like we're being crushed under the weight of this pandemic. But there is hope for us and encouragement for us in this passage and there's some implications that I just wanna point out to us as we wrap up our time in God's word. First of all, what may appear like a tragedy is an opportunity for God to display his majesty and his power. And we should be praying right now towards that end that God would use this this outbreak to put on display his power and his majesty. Second, God is in complete control. He knows what's happening. He knows what he's doing. And he's causing all things to work together for good to glorify himself in this world so that others, many more, would come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and give him the glory and the honor that is due him and he's also accomplishing good in your life, your personal life as a believer. Thirdly, we can find comfort in knowing that God will never give us more than we can handle. We are the disciples in this situation and, and, and guess what? God will never put more on us than we can handle. Be encouraged by that tonight. Fourthly, whatever we do, we don't want to be like Peter, who took matters into his own hands. And when we're in situations like we're all in right now, it, it, it's easy to do that. We're tempted to just kind of uh, kind of call an audible and just kind of take matters into our own hands and, and do something stupid instead of trusting God and waiting upon God to, to work in his way and his time. So don't take matters into your own hands. And then finally, 
Following the example of Jesus, we need to submit to God's will for our lives. Even if it involves pain, even if it involves heartbreak. If it's God's will, then it's God's best. And it's what's best for us. And so I hope that your heart is encouraged. I hope your heart is blessed as we consider the example of our Lord Jesus here in his betrayal and arrest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and we believe that it has power to change our lives and that whenever your word goes forth, it, it never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. And so, Lord, I'm confident that tonight, as your word has been proclaimed, that it will do, uh, accomplish the work that you want it to accomplish in the hearts and minds of everyone who has been listening or who maybe will listen later on this evening or tomorrow or next week or next month as they're able to access this on, online. I pray now as we prepare our hearts to take communion together, that we would be mindful of our sinfulness, that we would make sure that um, we're right with you, that all of our sin is confessed up, that we're uh, not out of fellowship with you in any way. And so, Lord, I pray even as we listen to this next song that uh, it would be an opportunity for us to humble and quiet our hearts and to ready ourselves to remember Jesus on the cross. We ask this in his name, amen.